Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. Uh, in this episode, I talk to myself and talk about the protests in Moscow that uh, have broken out over the uh, Moscow City Council elections. Um, and then I'm going to answer some of your mailbag questions. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. Because it is August and everybody flees Washington, D.C. for cooler climes this time of year, uh, we do not have a guest this week. Um, I'm just going to be discussing the uh, protests in Moscow, and then we're going to do uh, a mailbag segment. So thanks for joining us. Now, many of you have probably seen on TV or online or read about the protests in Moscow uh, over the past couple of weeks in late July and, and early August. The protesters came out in response to the authorities' decision to uh, not register opposition candidates for the city council elections in Moscow, which are going to be held on September 8th. We've had different estimates uh, of the number of people who came out for these protests. The opposition give numbers around 20,000. The government says it's a little more like 3,000, 3,500. Uh, it's really hard to tell. And so far, um, there's no indication that either the protests are going to die down or that the government is going to retreat and allow the opposition candidates to register for the elections. So in some ways, we uh, are kind of at an impasse. And this is a, a delicate situation, one that it's possible uh, we could look back on as a turning point uh, in terms of Russian domestic politics. Uh, certainly, it has implications for 2024 and the question of what Putin decides to do then. It's also a response to frustration with not only economic bread and butter issues, but also political frustrations. And the fact that we've seen these protests, which are probably the largest in Russia since 2011-2012 when Putin came back to the Kremlin means that there's a lot of, of built-up frustration. Now, what do these protests actually signify? That, of course, is a harder question. Um, we, of course, don't know the answer. We'll know it in retrospect, but I think trying to, to predict the future is, is hard. But I think we can hazard at least a couple of uh, observations at this point. One is that while these protests were not uh, about the economy, the economy plays a role. Russian growth uh, has stagnated, wages have stagnated, even though a lot of macroeconomic indicators like inflation and unemployment are doing pretty well, uh, most ordinary people don't feel that their lives are getting better. Now, yes, uh, sanctions imposed by the US and the European Union probably play some role in that. Oil prices play some role. Uh, and just you know, the fact that Russia's economy remains uh, overly reliant on natural resource extraction, corrupt, uh, that investment is uh, shrinking, especially foreign investment. Uh, these are all problems. And you might have had this political backlash anyway, but certainly the fact that people feel that they're stuck, that their lives are not improving, and that the promise that has always kind of underpinned the Putin system, which is uh, political quiescence in exchange for an improving standard of living, doesn't seem to be working anymore. 
we don't have a demographic profile of the protesters, of course. Um, many of them uh, seem to have been mobilized on social media based on the calls by Alexei Navalny and some of the other uh, opposition candidates who were denied registration. So it would appear that there's a, a large number of, of young people who are participating in these protests, but of course, we don't know. Um, one of the things that uh, we saw in 2011, 2012, was that you can have large-scale protests in Moscow and even other cities that are dominated by middle-class young people and that the government can ride that out uh, as long as it has support from other segments of society. Uh, I think there's an argument to be made that the so-called conservative turn that the Kremlin has taken, the, the emphasis on so-called traditional values and, and everything else that's really become prominent uh, during Putin's third term and fourth term, um, has its origin in this in these events when uh, it became clear that Putin had lost the youth, had lost the middle class, uh, and had lost the major cities, uh, and consequently made a, a very conscious decision to appeal to what Richard Nixon would have called the silent majority. That is, people outside the metropolitan centers, older people, less educated people. And if that division um, can be maintained, then there's a, a higher likelihood that the government will be able to uh, ride out this current wave of protests um, by painting the, the demonstrators as a small minority, as people who are uh, being influenced by foreigners who don't speak for or represent um, the country as a whole. If this becomes a bigger problem for the government, it's going to be because there are uh, efforts by people outside this kind of metropolitan youth educated group to join in or, or to support the protests. We've seen this in the past uh, over uh, the issue of pension reform. That's been one of the few issues where um, this quote-unquote silent majority has shown a willingness to to break from the government and, and to protest on its own. Now, uh, the first time that the government tried to uh, reform pensions and they tried to monetize benefits uh, back in the mid-2000s, uh, you had had lots of older people, pensioners, and, and others come out and, and demonstrate. More recently, pension reform was undertaken in a uh, way that was designed to sort of minimize the, the publicity, the, the, the spotlight that was put on it. Um, but of course, pensioners, others on, on fixed incomes are, are feeling the effects. Um, and I think that does create uh, a certain undercurrent of frustration that's exacerbated by the overall economic difficulties that Russia is facing. And so thinking about where does this protest movement go, what's its ultimate political significance, I think this is one of the big questions, whether this group of comparatively young metropolitan protesters who seem to have been galvanized by um, the failure to register candidates for the, for the city council elections can unite in some way with pensioners uh, and others who feel that their own quality of life has been negatively affected by some of the decisions that the government has made. 
Now, I think that in part explains why something that in the past might not have really had the ability to galvanize uh, large-scale public opposition like city council elections. I mean, I don't know about you, but I often have a hard time keeping track of what goes on in my city council. Most people in most parts of the world don't pay close attention to city council elections. Uh, And that's certainly true in Russia, where city council elections are uh, as controlled uh, as any other kind of elections, and where the powers of the city council are pretty limited in any case. So I imagine it was quite a surprise uh, for the authorities when this particular instance of failing to register opposition candidates for the election ended up galvanizing such a a large-scale Um, protest movement. Now, of course, Russia has seen uh, an upsurge uh, of protests over the last couple of years, uh, including uh, in some smaller cities outside of Moscow. But these were different because they do have precisely political demands, right? Some of the other protests that we've seen, like over the plans to construct an Orthodox church in uh, Yekaterinburg, these were focused on very specific, not necessarily political questions. Um, And for that reason, it was possible for the authorities to find some kind of accommodation, right? It, It didn't necessarily come to the conclusion that the people who were protesting against building a church in a public park uh, in Yekaterinburg were a threat to the system, that their goal was regime change or political change of a fundamental sort. They were focused very much on a, a concrete specific issue. And because the democratic process in Russia doesn't work very well, it had to express that view through through protests. Those kind of protesters, the government has shown it is capable of of listening to, working with, and finding some kind of accommodation. Um, In fact, I think if you go back throughout the the history of of the Putin government, this has been the standard approach, right? Whatever you read about Russia in the media, Russia is not a totalitarian or even a particularly harsh authoritarian country. Yes, there is a, a threat of repression that always kind of lingers in the background. But on the surface, there are avenues for people, ordinary people, to influence political outcomes. And there's a toleration for at least a certain amount of public protest around issues that are not seen as threatening to the system. So against construction of a church uh, in a park, uh, against the monetization of pension benefits, against environmental degradation, uh, in some limited ways, even against corruption. But this was different because even if there is a kind of economic malaise underlaying it in part, the protesters' demands were fundamentally political, which is to say that they wanted for the so-called non-systemic opposition to be given an actual stake uh, in the political system and for the authorities to engage in a kind of negotiation with them. That is perceived in the Kremlin as much more threatening to the status quo. And so even though we're only talking about city council elections, it's hard to imagine um, authorities being willing to compromise, uh, except sort of under most extreme pressure, which, which we haven't seen at this point. It also calls into question the kind of political bargain that has dominated, uh, particularly in Moscow, uh, over the last several years. So the current mayor of Moscow, Sergei Sabyanin, has taken the sort of 
Putin playbook of demanding political quiescence in exchange for improved standard of living. It has taken it and really kind of accelerated it in Moscow. Anybody who's been to Moscow in the last decade, I think it's hard not to be struck by how much nicer the city is today. Uh, how many more parks and bike paths and cafes and everything else there is. Moscow is actually a, a pretty nice place now in a way that 15, 20 or more years ago, it, it certainly wasn't. And Sabyanin has been instrumental in a lot of ways in improving the quality of life for ordinary Muscovites. But he hasn't deviated from this very top-down political system uh, in which ordinary people don't have much of a say. And this creates a set of incentives uh, and in some ways a dilemma for ordinary people because on the one hand, they see their lives in material terms getting better, becoming easier, becoming more pleasant and want to in some ways to contribute to that, want to experience that and even in some ways participate. On the other hand, these benefits are are being given um, from on high and they come with this explicit or maybe slightly implicit uh, condition that these are a gift of the authorities, that you don't have the right to demand anything, that you don't have a right to be a participant in in the political process. So the protests are a challenge not only for for Putin, for the federal level authorities, but also for Moscow, for the Moscow authorities. Um, Moscow, as it has always been, uh, is in some ways a laboratory for the country. Um, And this idea of trying to improve social services, trying to improve infrastructure, trying to make life better uh, as a way of diffusing political opposition, gone further perhaps in Moscow than than anywhere else in the country. But if it's not working in Moscow, that really does raise the question of whether it can be effective um, anywhere else either. So Sabyanin, his political future, of course, is in doubt, but so too is is Putin's. I don't think you can look at these protests without also thinking about the question of 2024, what does Putin choose to do uh, and what comes next? Um, Because again, this entire framework, this entire bargain of improved standard of living in exchange for political quiescence is the central operating system of, of Putin's entire time uh, in power. And as we saw in 2011 and 2012, there are a lot of people who don't accept that bargain, um, who actually want uh, a voice, who want a a stake in in the political system and are not willing to simply stand by uh, and be passive recipients of of the government's uh, material largesse if they don't have a hand in, in shaping policy. I think if you look at the last several years of Russian political history, certainly since the invasion of Crimea and the the war in Ukraine, where Putin's popularity uh, has increased uh, enormously, is up in the the high 80s at one point, I think you could convince yourself for a while that what we saw in 2011, 2012 uh, had dissipated, that these uh, strategic appeals to nationalism, to um, this sense of, of Russia's rightful return, to, to glory had succeeded in diffusing um, some of these 
uh, sources of, of political opposition. But now, with the economy stagnating, with Putin's approval ratings declining, and now with the outbreak of these protests in Moscow that the government really has struggled to, to deal with and, and to get a handle on, um, I think in some ways we're back to where we were in the pre-Crimea period, which is the government is struggling to figure out on what basis it can claim a mandate to rule. Certainly the, the infusion of, of patriotism that, that Crimea touched off is still there. But what these protests are signaling is that for a lot of people, that's not enough. They want something more. And if we get to 2024 and the only thing that is on offer is more of the same, that I think is going to be a problem. Of course, we don't know how Putin, the Kremlin, the government are going to handle the 2024 question. That's very much a subject of discussion. It's a, a popular parlor game in Moscow to, to try and prognosticate what's going to happen in 2024. But I think what these protests show and the, the endurance of these protests, despite the crackdown that we saw uh, already, is that this problem's not going to go away. At the same time, the Russian government has been very reluctant to go into sort of hard authoritarian mode. The the actual levels of violence uh, directed at the protesters in this instance and in others has been real, but it's been comparatively limited. Um, we saw a number of arrests in Moscow, about between 1,300 and 1,400 so far. Um, we saw uh, some peaceful protesters being uh, hit with, with riot clubs. Uh, we saw police uh, using force to disrupt uh, the gathering of crowds. So far, we haven't seen kind of, of large-scale repression that, just as an example, we saw, let's say, in, in Tiananmen Square in, in 1989. I don't think the authorities want to go down that route. Certainly, doing so would have enormous and uh, very unpredictable consequences for, for the legitimacy of the government as well as for its, uh, its, its standing internationally. And I think one of the real questions that we don't have an answer for is if push comes to shove, if put up against the wall, whether the government is prepared to go that far. Um, we've seen steps like the creation of the National Guard uh, over the last couple of years that indicate, suggest at least, that the government is contemplating the need to use much larger, more overwhelming force than anything that we've seen so far. On the other hand, it's an open question uh, whether and under what circumstances the security services themselves, National Guard or otherwise, would follow orders to do something like that. We've seen in the past, uh, in the 1990s at least, a number of instances when both Soviet and Russian uh, security forces ultimately decided that they were not willing to go down the path of uh, large-scale bloodshed. Uh, we saw this more recently in Ukraine. Uh, one of the reasons that the Yanukovych government fell was because the security services who were directly subordinated to the presidential administration ultimately decided that they were unwilling to use the level of force that would have been required to uh, end the Maidan protests, which is what Yanukovych had demanded. And when uh, they were forced to make a decision 
decision. The decision they made was to um, not go down the path of, of tolerating large-scale bloodshed. And that left Yanukovych uh, completely exposed, and ultimately uh, he made the decision to step down and flee the country. Predicting what's going to happen in Russia, of course, is hard. But I think uh, looking over the history of the last couple of decades in Russia and in Ukraine and elsewhere gives you a sense of, of just what the dilemma is and how significant it could be once we get to 2024, um, at which point Putin will have been in power for close to a quarter of a century. And a significant percentage of the population won't really have uh, memories of anything before that. Uh, and if you've been in power that long, it's hard to escape being held responsible for everything that goes wrong uh, as much as you want to take credit for everything that's gone right. And that is the challenge. Okay. If you listen to the podcast on a regular basis, you often hear us talk about, or you often hear us invite you to send in your mailbag questions. Uh, we haven't done a mailbag segment for a while, um, so I thought this would be a good time to do one. And thankfully, uh, lots of you have followed instructions and sent us mailbag questions. So we're very happy for that. So let's dive right in. Our first question comes from Eli Berga. I hope uh, Eli pronounced your name correctly. And Eli asks, what are the biggest ideological differences between the U.S. and Russia? Where to start? I think the first thing to talk about here is that there's a debate about whether the confrontation between the United States and Russia is ideological or not, whether there is an ideological component to it. Of course, during the Cold War, there was, right? The United States stood for a model of politics and economics that emphasized democratic elections, capitalism, uh, and various other things. The Soviet Union advocated for um, a centralized system based on the power of the Communist Party and a, a communist collectivized, centrally planned economic system. That system didn't work, which is why the Soviet Union is no longer with us. Today, the US and Russia are still uh, at odds over a number of, of issues. And some commentators and analysts have portrayed this conflict as having an ideological component to it. What does that mean? Well, uh, in a lot of ways, the U.S. still promotes the same things that it promoted during the Cold War, which is to say uh, it favors democratic elections and capitalist economics, uh, although one could call into question how uh, serious it is about those uh, at times, whereas Russia, the story goes, that Russia promotes a, a political model that's based on sometimes called kleptocracy as uh, the domination of, of politics by uh, oligarchs and a vision of the world that emphasizes quote unquote traditional values, emphasis on uh, religion and national identity and, and various other things. Like a lot of stereotypes, there's a grain of truth uh, in this portrayal, but I think the reality is uh, a little bit murkier. Of course, the United States has its own problem with oligarchs, uh, to be sure. Uh, the role of money in politics in, in this country is uh, enormous uh, and perhaps not quite on the level of, of Russia because we do have a, a more open political system and a, a opportunity for um, ordinary people to, to influence political outcomes in a way that, that you don't have in Russia. Um, but nevertheless, and we've certainly seen this in some of the scandals around the, the Trump administration's ties to Russia, um, the role of, of oligarchs and, and money in politics uh, is – 
a thing that is a problem in, in the United States uh, as much as it is in Russia. On democracy versus managed democracy, um, this is a, a bigger dividing line. I think the United States, for the most part, is uh, sincere in believing that public participation, electoral democracy is the best way of doing politics. And we historically have encouraged uh, other countries to follow that model. Um, again, whether we continue to do so is, is something of an open question. Russia's vision uh, is much more of what for a time we're calling managed democracy or sovereign democracy, uh, which is to say that there is no kind of universal model. Um, every country gets the right to decide for itself how it runs uh, its affairs. Some may choose to do democracy, some may choose to do uh, something else. Um, and that in Russia's case, uh, that something else is this system of managed democracy that we've been talking about on the podcast today. I do think that there is a kernel of this ideological confrontation uh, in the U.S.-Russia standoff. That's to say Russia's vision of the world is uh, one in which – uh, countries get to determine for themselves what kind of political systems they want, uh, where there is no expectation that democracy is the only or even the best uh, way of doing things. But in contrast to the Cold War, Russia is not really selling its own alternative model. What it's really saying is every country can have its own model. Let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, and the U.S., for the most part, still says there is this one model, and this is what we would like other countries to adopt, and we think the world would be a better place if other countries did business like this. At the same time, the level of ideological confrontation between the U.S. and Russia is much less than it was during the Cold War. So this is this is one aspect of the of the confrontation between the two countries, but it's not necessarily the driving force that it was uh, once upon a time. Hope that answered your question, Eli, more or less. Okay, our next question comes from Andrew Denary from Colby College. And Andrew asks, after listening to uh, one of our past episodes on the countries between Russia and the West, uh, asks about the importance of national identity. Uh, he says, I tend to agree that the countries you discussed, that is the ones between Russia and the West, seem to have particular trouble building a national identity or consensus in large part because of their in-between status. Uh, it seems to me, uh, Andrew goes on, that the importance of national identity, history, culture, uh, or lack thereof is often overlooked by political scientists who prefer to focus on the current conditions of states, institutions, and world leaders. So I'm curious as to how much, if at all, you think historical context and national identity play a role in how countries in between Russia and the West approach their place in the security order. Thank you for the question, Andrew. I am certainly not going to pass up uh, an opportunity to talk about the importance of history, culture, and identity. Um, I think these are very important uh, issues, one that social science, political science, and other disciplines uh, struggle to make sense of because they're hard to operationalize um, in social science terms. At the same time, as uh, we were just discussing with regard to, to Eli's question, there is a difference in how countries conceptualize themselves, think about the role that they want to play on the world stage, and that history and culture um, have a lot to do with that. For example, we talk about Russia a lot on the podcast, obviously, we call Russian roulette after all. And uh, one of the things that makes Russia distinctive 
is that uh, there's a very strong consensus within Russia that the country is a great power, uh, that it has a right to be taken seriously, that uh, others, including the United States, have to listen to it, and that it has a right to play a leading role in its own neighborhood. That ideological, if you want to call it that, consensus is very much uh, a product of Russia's own national history uh, and culture and identity. Now, Andrew, you asked specifically about the countries in between uh, Russia and the West. So presumably you're talking about countries like Ukraine and, and Belarus and the states of the South Caucasus and, and perhaps some others. I think that this question of, of history and, and identity is, is central in a lot of ways. Um, the question of where these countries fit politically is very much a question about how they define themselves in cultural and identitarian terms. Um, we've seen this most starkly uh, when it comes to Ukraine. Um, Ukraine is politically uh, divided between people who see it as a European country uh, sharing common values and a common culture with Europe and those who see it as a country that has more in common with Russia and part of a sort of larger, I won't say Russian world, but uh, Eurasian sphere, if you will. This divide is very uh, historically conditioned. Uh, the territory that's now Ukraine and the people who lived there have over the course of the last thousand years been at different times and in different places, either part of countries and empires to the west or to the east. Until the 17th century, much of what is now Ukraine uh, was part of Poland-Lithuania. Uh, so it was influenced by Catholicism, the Reformation, or the Counter-Reformation, those kind of, of influences. Uh, and it was only in the 17th century when it was swallowed up by the Russian Empire and then again started coming under the influence of, of Russia, which was now uh, centered in Moscow. And so Ukraine has both of these influences, uh, Western and Eastern. And the salience that they have in Ukraine's own domestic politics changes over time. Uh, and it changes in part also depending on where in Ukraine you go. Culture of Western Ukraine, uh, and in fact, the westernmost parts of Ukraine only became part of the Soviet Union during World War II, and the, therefore have a, a much uh, longer history sort of outside the, the Russian sphere. The culture there uh, is very different from the culture in a place like the Donbass. So the conflict in Ukraine is about a lot of things, but in part it's about this conflict over identity, and it's a, a conflict that's very deeply rooted in Ukraine's own history. And one could say the same thing in macro terms about some of these other countries in between, like Belarus, like the countries uh, of the South Caucasus, particularly Georgia, which is a, an Orthodox Christian country, but one that has longstanding historical ties to Russia, but also to Iran, to Turkey, and to Byzantine world, to, to Europe. And which of these identity discourses, which uh, framing of, of identity ultimately comes to dominate politically is going to say a lot about the political future of these countries that are being pulled in different directions.
so, Andrew, I hope that uh, answers your question. It's a it's an enormous topic, and it's one that uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about and and comparing the different countries. Um, but I think when we talk about the fate of the the in between states, it's really important to keep in mind that uh, this isn't just a political or a, a, a military issue. It's one that's very much about how people in these states define themselves uh, in identity terms relative to Russia and the West. And the only thing I would add to that is to say that we, for the last decade or so, have been moving in a direction where Russia and the West are defining themselves as culturally distinct. Uh, and that places greater pressure on these states to, to decide. It's harder to be in between. Uh, when there is greater support for the idea that Russia was part of a, a larger Europe. It was easier for a country like Ukraine uh, to say it was European, but it was also close to Russia. As the relationship between Russia and the West has deteriorated, as Russia has fallen back on a more um, historically focused uh, definition of its own identity that emphasizes these so-called traditional values, I think it's raised the stakes for some of these countries in between that now you know, are really in a position where they're being pulled in both directions. And you have supporters uh, of both a, a Western orientation and a Russian orientation in a lot of these countries. And that is the, the substance of politics um, in many of them. So thanks for the question. Thanks for joining us. That's it for our show today. If you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, uh, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out uh, and subscribe on Google Play or on SoundCloud. Answered some mailbag questions today. We'll do more again soon. Uh, keep sending them our way. You can email them to rep at csis.org. Uh, and please put the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Look forward to hearing from you and doing uh, more mailbag questions here soon. You can also follow us on Twitter uh, at CSIS Russia. And you can follow me directly at Dr. J. Mankoff. Of course, finally, big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes especially our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS, external relations, and iLab team. Thanks for joining. We will talk to you again soon.